So this is Psalms 40 uh, for the drudgery music of David, a psalm. The NIV version says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering. Oops, sorry, I just pressed on that. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, it's good to clap for God's word and read so well. Thank you, Paige, for reading that for us. Well, good morning, everybody. These are fun mornings, and not just because it's full in here, but because when we moved in here last Labor Day, one of the things that we had been praying wasn't just that God would fill this place with people, well, that's wonderful, but that God would fill this place with praise. That's what we prayed for, that God would lift up his name, his glory, our praise in this place. And you know, one of the reasons they designed churches with a high ceiling like this is because when you come in, it lifts your heart up, like we are joining in with the heavenly worship. And it says in the Bible that praise is like smoke or like incense that comes up and fills the atmosphere. And Paul says it either smells like death or it smells like life. And we praise God is the fragrance of life in the building this morning. And you know, God's plan for all of history is to fill the earth with the praise of his glory. That everybody would be so in awe of what a wonderful God we have, that we would praise him with our lives, that we would talk about him, we would sing to him, we would spread the news of what he's done like the water that covered the seas, that all nations, all tribes, all tongues would know the great saving God that we have. And this psalm this morning is just a little snippet of that glory that we give back to God because of the wonderful things that he's done in our hearts. There's a commercial from a couple of years ago that I've always just loved. And at the beginning of the commercial, there's this guy, and he's walking on the sidewalk, and he's on his phone. 
and he's getting ready to walk out into the street, and somebody next to him puts their arm out and keeps him, and then all of a sudden a bus comes by in front of him. And after that, the guy realizes, oh, man, this person just saved my life. I should do something nice for somebody else. So he walks down. There's a person carrying this heavy load, and so he helps them carry the load, and then the person that was carrying the load holds the door for somebody, and the person who had the door held for them is walking down the sidewalk, and in the end, that person sees that there's a person on their phone about to walk into the street, and they put their arm out like this to keep them, and then the bus goes by. And you would never know this, but it's a commercial for Coca-Cola. It has nothing to do with Coca-Cola, but it's a great commercial. And they've discovered something so deep in what it means to be human, which is when there's something that you really love and there's something that you are really excited about, you have to tell somebody else. You have to spread it around. You have to do something. We are made to worship. So anything that we're fascinated with, anything that we love, we talk about it. We do something about it. We tell our friends. We bring them. Everybody's got to know about it. And you know, the interesting thing is what, what no ad executive could ever discover from this kind of commercial is that this has been going on from the very beginning of time because God made you in such a way that when he does something in your life, you do something about it. When God moves in your heart, you tell somebody about it. Now, I discovered, I was looking up statistics about this, and 70% of the world's population knows the Coca-Cola brand. I mean, that's amazing. Like, we have 6 billion people, 4.2 billion people recognize that little red logo and that same original flavor that they have in Coca-Cola. And how did that happen? Because people who are captivated by something as insignificant as sugar water told their friends about it all over the earth. And they know that their best campaign is just to have a few lives changed, and they tell people, and they tell people, and they tell people, and soon all the world will know. Everybody will recognize this emblem means Coca-Cola. This morning in the psalm, David is doing something very similar. David is doing something that we see him do all over the place. It's actually one of the things that makes David so unique. So think about David for a moment. If you know anything about David's life, you know two things. You usually know that it's said that David was a man after God's heart. He was a special kind of person. He's a person whose heart was so knitted to God's that he actually looked similar to the way God does. His heart beat the same way God's does. And then if you know anything else about David, chances are you know he did a lot of horrible things, a lot of terrible stuff. In fact, the most famous thing about David is the ultimate, ultimate mess up with Bathsheba. So you come to a text like this and you say, how is it that somebody like David, so imperfect, so flawed, was a person after God's own heart? And what we see in this psalm this morning, and and what I want you to take away from this is, this is the principle of David's life. This is what made David unique. He knew that in every season of his life, there was something to praise God about. He knew that whatever circumstance he found himself in, there was a testimony to give about who God was and what he was doing. The David principle is to look at your life and in whatever you're going through, be able to see God's fingerprints on it. To be able to turn and have your life changed and tell people and they will come to know God because of what's happened in your life. Now, I use the word testimony. 
We typically use the word testimony to mean like how you came to faith. So if you're going to give your testimony, that usually means how you got saved. How did you come to know Christ? But that's, that's not the way the Bible uses the word testimony. The word testimony in the Bible is a much bigger word. It covers so much more than that. The word testimony in the New Testament comes from the word martyreo or martyrion. And if you're like, that kind of sounds like the word martyr. That's where we get the word. A, a martyr is a witness. They give a testimony of what God has done. So you see, all through the New Testament it says, and they witnessed. They were martyrs. They lived their lives in such a way as to testify before what God was doing. And a martyr is somebody who gives a testimony by laying their whole life down. We think whether you're on the mission field or in the early church, these martyrs, it's, there was an ancient quote, the, martyrs, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the testimony that God is who he says he is. He's worth following. He fulfills his promises. And it's easy for us to think, oh, I would love to have a testimony like that. Giving your life for God would be awesome. Being in a situation where you could lay it all down, it'd be like taking your whole life and, and laying down a billion-dollar gift of your life for something. That would be amazing. But if you've lived a Christian life for like more than a couple of days, you realize that our testimonies, our witness, living for God is harder a lot of times than dying for God or the thought of dying for him. Instead, it'd be like taking that whole billion-dollar gift of your life to lay down and go into the bank and changing it into quarters and then giving two or three quarters away every time you can for the rest of your life. That's what living for God is like. And so our testimonies are every time we give a little bit of what God has given to us away. I give a little testimony that God rescued me, or he saved me, or he has been kind to me, or he's fulfilled his word in my life. That's a few quarters of our life that we're giving away as a testimony to who God is. Now, this morning, we're dealing with a psalm that is a testimony. This is a testimony about David's life. And here's the thing about the psalms. So the Bible has all these different genres, and psalms are usually the most uncomfortable for us because most of us don't sit around reading poetry except when we read the Bible. And so we're comfortable with Paul's letters. Paul would say what this psalm says like this. We know that we can trust God. And when we can trust him, we should tell everybody about it. That's how you would say this in an epistle is God is trustworthy. Tell people about it. We also are comfortable with narratives. Narratives are just stories. So you might tell a story of this psalm like the story of Joseph. He was at the lowest of lows. And then God lifted him up to the very top. And he was able to bless so many people because of what God did in his life. But how would you say this in a psalm? How do you say what, what David's saying here in a psalm? You say it like this. You know that feeling when you are so low, you are sunk down in the mud and you can't get out and the waters are closing in and you're panicking and you're wondering if God is even there? Do you remember that feeling? That happened to me and God picked me up and put my feet on a rock and he put me in a secure place and he provided for me and I'm gonna tell everybody about it. That's what the psalms do. You know, I'll never think of the Psalms without thinking of a couple years ago, one of my nieces was bringing me a children's book to read, and you know, she can't read, so she wants you to come and read the book with her, and I'm opening up this book, and it's a book on farms, so you're learning like shapes and animals and all this in this book, and one of the things I noticed is, in the book, it's not just words that are written, there's these little shapes that have grooves in them, 
And so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take their finger and start to trace the shapes and the animals as you're talking about them. And so what happens is, by the time you get to the end of this book, their muscle memory, their mind, and their touch, and everything all together learns what a circle is because they've traced it. They've been there. They've put their finger in the groove, and they've learned. If you want to make a circle, here's what you do. And what the Psalms are, are God-given grooves, patterns for how to respond to what God does in our life. So do you want to give God glory in your life? Well, you go to a psalm like this and you put your finger in the groove and you say, okay, when I'm in a situation I don't understand, when I'm in a situation that feels like this, what should I do? I should do what this psalm says to do. I should turn all of my worry and all of my anxiety and all my desires and I should put them on God. And then when God answers, I should go and tell people because he's going to use me to bring people to himself. That's what these psalms do. So David is a master of turning everything in his life into a testimony. He's a master at taking any circumstance and looking and saying, God, what do you have for me? And beyond that, what do you have for the people around me in this season of my life? Well, this psalm starts out with God turning his waiting into a testimony. His waiting into a testimony. In fact, this is like David's life verse right here. I waited for the Lord, and he finally answered. So if you look at the beginning of this psalm in verse 1, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, which is kind of an underwhelming way to translate this because it's one of these emphatic Hebrew words. And when you emphasize something in Hebrew, you don't use a different word. You just use the same word over and over again, right? So we're going to say God is holy. We don't say God is most holy. We say God is holy, holy, holy. That's as holy as you can be, is three times holy. And here what he does, he says, I waited, I mean waited for God. I waited for the Lord, and not just in a way that you can see the end coming. I waited and waited for God. I mean, think about David's life for a minute. David is totally insignificant. I mean, he couldn't have imagined that God would want anything to do with such an unlikely person as him. He's the youngest of all these brothers who are doing wonderful things. Even, even when Samuel calls the family together, they bring all the other brothers, but David doesn't get to come. Right? David's the one that gets to stay in the field because Jesse thinks to himself, I mean, if anything good's going to happen, it's going to happen to one of these brothers, not to David. David stays in the field. He's tending the sheep. He is the shepherd. He is taking care of the needs of the family while they go off and do great things. And when Samuel gets there, he looks at the brothers and he's like, something's not right here. Do you guys have another son? And Jesse's like, I mean, the youngest, David, but you, you know, there's nothing about him. He's like, go, go get David. And it says in 1 Samuel 16 that when David shows up, Samuel looks not as the world looks. Samuel looks at the heart, and he realizes this is the one that God has chosen to anoint as king. The youngest, the weakest, the most overlooked is going to be king. Well, things start to go really well for David after this. Do you remember he's out in the field again, and his brothers are off at war, and the Israelite army is kind of in a stalemate against the Philistines. And the Philistines have this big champion named Goliath. And David brings some to-go orders to his brothers, and he's like, what's going on? And they're like, there's this giant, Goliath, and nobody can defeat him. And David's like, I could defeat him. <laughs> okay, okay, David, all right. I can defeat him. I'm going to get five smooth stones. He takes one. He knocks down the giant. He wins the battle for the Israelites, and then... Nothing happens. In fact, nothing happens in David's life for a long time. He's anointed king. He leads the army to kill their most powerful enemy. And then he waits 15 years to become king. Now, why? Why would God do it that way? 
Why would God take somebody who is so clearly gifted and surrendered and going places and put them on the shelf for 15 years? Think about the contrast between David and Saul. So Saul, when we find out that Saul's going to be king, the first thing we learn about him is he is head and shoulders taller than everybody. He is a military leader. He is well-respected. The people want him to be their king. And he does become king, and he's a decent king for a little while. But Saul's big problem is he doesn't know how to wait on God. Think about what actually leads to Saul's downfall. He's basically amassing the troops, and he's got this sacrifice to give, and they're saying, well, you got to wait for Samuel. That's what God said. Wait for Samuel to give the sacrifice. And Saul says, I don't need to wait for Samuel. And he offers the sacrifice, and it immediately says at that point, God had left Saul. So what happened with Saul was God put him in a place of leadership. God didn't make him wait. He, he brought all of his dreams to fruition, but he wasn't the kind of person who could live for God in those circumstances. And then you have David, who had the heart and he had the potential, but God waited. And in waiting, he was doing something in David so that when God brought him to the place that he had promised, David was the kind of king who would live for God, who wouldn't fall into a lot of the things that Saul fell into, who wouldn't forsake God, but would continually serve him. And so David, looking back, says, when God waits, he always has a purpose. I have waited for the Lord, he says in the first part, and in the middle part he's like, and I am currently waiting for the Lord. But my testimony in a season of waiting is God is doing something in this season that he wouldn't do any other way. And when I get to the end of it, he will have put something in me. He will have shaped me in a way that I need to be at the end of this season. Many of you guys know David and Susan Kimmel. I think they came to the first service, but they're not here. But I just have been so inspired by something that David says. So if you don't know David, David for the last few years has been waiting on a lung transplant. And he had the lung transplant. It was successful. They're back in Carlton Landing this weekend. It's just an amazing answered prayer. Unbelievable miracle through what the doctors can do for him. But we were talking a few months before the surgery. And I said, how are you doing? I mean, because that process is so brutal. If you've ever, ever walked through this with somebody, it's like you can get a call anytime, any day, or not, perpetually, just waiting. I said, how are you doing with the waiting? I'd be going crazy. And he said this. He said, you know, I really don't want to miss what God has in this season. My only prayer is that in the waiting, I mean, this is something that he wants more than anything. This is his life that's on the line. And he said, I know that every day I wait, God has something, and I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. That's turning your waiting into a testimony. Turning your waiting into a testimony. Now, David also turned his trials into a testimony. David really didn't have that great a life, if you think about it, on the terms of, was his life easy? No. Did things go his way? No. In fact, nobody in the Bible who is really used by God has a cushy, easy, enjoyable life. David's life was plagued with trials. His, his life was one thing that God was delivering him after another. And to make matters worse, sometimes this was David's own doing. As I mentioned earlier, the, the thing that most people know about David is the story with Bathsheba. So David is at home, he should be out to war, but he's not, sees this woman, brings her into his home, and to cover up the affair, he ends up having her husband killed. I mean, this is, this is a pretty epic fall on your face if you're the king of Israel. But what David does next is what sets David apart from anybody else. What David does, we get to see in Psalm 51. 
And in Psalm 51, look at what David prays. This is in the midst of repenting, turning to God, pouring his heart out, asking God to forgive him. He says this. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now here's the part. That, that, that passage is pretty, pretty well known, but what he says next is an insight into this David principle. Why does David want to be restored? Why does David want to have the joy of salvation return to him? It's not just so he can feel better about himself, although the grief, the grief and, the, and, the, and the guilt had to be crippling. It's because he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So here's what David knew. It wasn't his strength that was going to be the greatest testimony to God. It was his weakness. It was his forgiveness. It was his grace that had been given to him. And sometimes we don't realize it at the time, but what God has done to forgive us and be gracious to us doesn't look bad on him. Our sin looks bad on us. It makes God look wonderful. The fact that God could take a sinner who has done so many things that I could put my finger on in my own life and in David's life and in your lives and say, and God restored them and he renewed them and he turned them around. And because of their story of forgiveness, other people are going to be forgiven. See, David realized that even in his own sin and weakness and repentance, God was the one who was going to look glorified. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not a story of human strength. It's a story that God sent his own son to pay for this burden that we had on us. It was our own doing, our own fault. We deserved it. It wasn't like a technicality. It wasn't a set of adverse circumstances. It was that we had completely turned from him, but he didn't turn away from us, and he sent his son to forgive us and bring us back to him. The story that God is basically conducting a giant family reunion of sinners back into his presence may be the greatest testimony that you can give about your life to somebody else. That if God can do it for me, he can do it for you. If God can do it for me, he can do it for you. I love this about the Apostle Paul's life. You remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians. He had a really, really big blot on his conscience. But in 1 Timothy, towards the end of his life, he says this. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I and the foremost. But in me, as a sign of God's mercy and his grace, as me and the foremost, I am now a sign of his mercy towards the worst of sinners. See, what Paul was saying is, my life's value is to be a trophy of the grace of God that people would see, and my testimony would be, if he did it for me, he can do it for you. David also turned his answered prayers into testimonies. You know, over and over again in the Psalms, if you read through these Psalms, you realize Psalms is not like a really happy book. In fact, half of the Psalms are laments, asking God to intervene. Things are not going well, God. Are you there? You need to show up like yesterday. Where have you been during all of this? And then there are testimony to God interceding in people's lives and delivering them and then them telling about what God has done. This week in our town, there was a guy that is a traveling evangelist, and he had had a big event, and he had come through and spent a couple of days in town, and so I, I saw him at the pool, actually, um, there, suffering there at the pool on this uh, beautiful week that we've had here, and we just started talking, 
And I was asking him how his time had been in the town and what kind of things had been going on. He's like, man, I've had the most amazing answered prayer in this town. He says, my thing is, and like I said, he's, he's an evangelist. That is his gifting. He loves to share the gospel, share his testimony. And he was saying, one of the things I pray for is how to have spiritual conversations with the people that I meet. So he says, so I met this lady in town, and I do what I always do. I was having a conversation. I really wanted to engage spiritually. And so I said, hey, I've always asked this kind of weird question. Is there anything that I can pray for you for? And he said, the most amazing thing happened. This lady who I'd never met before started crying. And she said, you know, I woke up this morning, and the thing on my heart was, God, bring me someone that I can pray for. Bring me somebody that I need to pray for. And she says, so actually, I think you're the guy. What can I pray for you for? And he's like, I came here on vacation, basically. And what I got was an answered prayer of somebody that God sent here to minister to me in my time of need. See, this is what the Psalms do, is they take a story like that and they say, and God is always doing that. If you wait long enough, if you look hard enough, if you pray, you're going to see God was working the entire time to bring somebody there to minister to you. Now, here's the last thing. David always turned stories of salvation into a testimony. David constantly, if you read through the psalm four times, he's talking about God saved me, and I've got to tell people about it. God saved me, and I want to tell it in the congregation. I want to tell it to everybody I know. At the end of this psalm, he says, may everyone who seeks you rejoice and be glad in you. And he says, let those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Or another way to put this is, let God be magnified. Let God be magnified in my life, that your testimony is a magnifying glass of what God has done. And David just loves this phrase. This is all over the place in the Psalms, all over the place. He says, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt him together. Psalm 34, 35, 69, 70, here in Psalm 40, my life is to magnify God for saving me. That's the point of my life, is to magnify him. You know, my favorite instance of this in the Bible, I just love this story is in Mark chapter 5. And in Mark 5, Jesus goes on a bit of a weird journey. What he does is he sails across the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to the other side where there's this group of Gentile people who the Jews thought God doesn't want anything to do with those people. And when he gets there, they get up on the shore, and there's this demon-possessed guy. And he comes running, screaming at Jesus and the disciples. And the way Mark lays it out in chapter 5 is, it is it's one of the most depressing, gruesome pictures of sin in the Bible. It says this guy was so distraught that he lived among the tombs. They'd kicked him out into the graveyard. And all day and all night, he walked around screaming and crying out in his misery. And he was cutting himself with shards of pottery because he was so miserable. And as this little line, is like, and they couldn't even restrain him with chains anymore. And you're like, you just get this glimpse into his background. You're like, they were chaining him up kicking him out of town. I mean, he is so destroyed. And so Jesus, it says, is yelling at this guy to release the demons, to kick the demons out of his life. And then you get this really creepy scene where Jesus is like, what's your name? And they say, Legion, because we are many. I mean, this is just terrifying stuff. But Jesus kicks him out into these pigs, sends the pigs into the ocean. And in the next scene, this guy is sitting, and it says, clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. Now, the people in the town hear about this, and they come out, and 
They, it says, are terrified because of what Jesus has done. And I mean, this is really the point. There's two kinds of people. There's the people that see the work of God and want to follow it and want to be a part of it. And there's people that see the work of God and they're like, I got to get away from this. And so these people say, please leave. And Jesus agrees. Jesus gets back in the boat, gets his disciples, and he's beginning to sail across. And I just think of this story, I always think of Jesus like almost counting heads for the disciples, like doing a roll call or something. You know, you got two, two Jameses, John, you know, all these people, and then the demon-possessed guy. And Jesus is like, okay, you're, you're not coming. The demon-possessed guy is not, not coming with us. And the guy's like, are you kidding me? Of course I'm coming with you guys. He's like, do you know what these people did to me? I can't stay with them. And Jesus is like, sorry, man, we already got 12. We can't have any more, you know? And he says, no, I've got something for you. He says, you need to go back to your town, back to your family, back to your friends, and tell what God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I just love this story because this is everybody's mission. Just go tell what God has done for you, how he's had mercy on you you. So the guy goes back, Jesus gets in the boat, he talked to one guy, did one miracle, goes back over, and the guy goes back to his town, and then a few chapters later, Jesus returns. And when Jesus comes back to this area, floods of people come to see Jesus. I mean, people are bringing the sick and the wounded and the demon-possessed. They're bringing people that need to know him. And Mark doesn't play this out, but you've got to think he's kind of smiling as he's writing this, let the reader understand. He did what God called him to do. One guy whose life was changed, one guy who had a story, one guy who just took it and made it into a testimony to talk about what God had done in his life began to tell everybody, starting with the people who had been so cruel to him, the people that had abandoned him, the people that needed to hear it the most. And when Jesus comes back, he realizes that guy shared his testimony and thousands came to know Christ because of what he had done. All because he took Jesus' word and he did something about it. He spoke about it. He had something transformational happen in his life. And he said, I'm going to put down a few of my quarters. And I'm going to tell the testimony of what God has done in my life. And guys, that's God's plan. That is his plan A. He could have written it in the sky he could have made us so that, you know, when you hit 13 or something, you fall into this trance and you, you see the gospel. That's just not the way he did it. He did it because we as human beings see what God has done and we tell other people. What's your testimony? What is the testimony in this season of your life that you're going to share? Let me pray. Father, we praise you for saving us. We praise you for sending your son. We praise you for people like David who model what it's like to follow you. But most of all, Lord, this morning we praise you that you have given us something unique, a record in our life, a running story in our life that is a testimony to your goodness. Father, I pray that you would put people in our path and in our hearts that need to hear about your faithfulness to us. In our trials and our suffering and our temptations and our forgiveness, in our salvation, Lord, I pray that you would make us quick to speak about all you've done in our lives. Father, fill us to the point that we have to overflow to tell other people how great our God is. What a wonderful Father you are. How amazing it is to walk by your Spirit. So, Father, do that today. As David prays in this psalm, make many come to you, know you, be restored to you. 
because we went and told what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.